Hello and welcome to another episode of In the Narthex. My name is Alyssa Gubrell, and I'm here today with Pastor Jeff Thune and Pastor Lucas Hattenberger of Northwest Bible Church. Every other week or so, when we're not sick with COVID or other stuff going on, um, we sit down to discuss how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to the questions and conversations of today. And in the last few weeks, we've walked through Lent and Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter. And now today, we are going to talk about the theology of the Ascension. So what is the Ascension? That is a great question, Alyssa Gubriel. Um, Yeah, we should probably start by defining terms. Um, The Ascension in Acts chapter 1, so one of a a couple different places that the scripture references this event that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we read the following, and when he had said these things, speaking about Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, In layman's terms, we would say the ascension is Christ's victorious return to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, who through him has become our Father, and his enthronement as king of the cosmos there. So one helpful comment on this is Karl Barth says that he who goes into the far country, he does so in order that humanity may return home. So what we're saying is Jesus came to us in the flesh and now he brings us in the flesh to God through this happening. It's essentially the completing of the journey, the story, the message of the gospel. Even in Ephesians chapter four, you have Paul saying, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So that's that's what we're talking about. And why? Why are we talking about the ascension today? Uh, The reason why is is because we just celebrated Easter, which celebrates the resurrection. And um, my my intuition is that we, we talk a lot about the resurrection um, we talk a lot about the fact that Jesus defeated death, uh, but we don't talk a lot about what Jesus did after that mm-hmm. and, um, or, or even think about um, what Jesus is doing even right now. Uh, we know that Jesus can hear us, that he's uh, in, in heaven doing something. Um, so we want to talk about ascension. The other reason is um, if you've been tracking along with us in the, in the calendar year that, that um, the church celebrates, uh, we're coming up into some of these summer festivals that um, summer celebrations that um, I actually think we're going to look at celebrating doing a night of worship for Pentecost celebrating the uh, the uh, um, anointing of the Holy Spirit but there is another one called the day of the ascension which is uh, something that's celebrated uh, um, a little over a month after Easter so we just wanted to just kind of talk about the ascension it touches a lot of different aspects um, not just something that happened in the past but presently what Jesus is doing for us and in us right now. So we thought it might be um, just really applicable and something to help us think through as we uh, continue to journey with Jesus uh, into this new life that he's introduced us to. 
some might say it's one of the most neglected doctrines in the life of the modern church. So why would you say it's been neglected? Yeah, good question. Because, I mean, even, yeah, I, I would say even as Lucas was saying that, um, it's not something historically we've spent a bunch of time on as a church, taught a bunch on, even as I have kind of been walking with Christ the last 20, 30 years or so. Not something that I spent a ton, a ton of time reflecting upon. Patrick Schreiner is really helpful here. Um, we read a book by him that, um, just called The Ascension of Christ. And he gives five reasons why this has been neglected. And I think they're helpful because most of us are like, oh, yeah, that okay, that makes sense. That's why I haven't thought about it a ton. So <clears throat> the five are, are just simply this. Number one, the Bible doesn't talk about the ascension a lot. Um, in Luke chapter 24, it references, and then we read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. But you have those two passages together, and that, uh, you know, together, that's a, a total of seven verses that speak directly to the ascension. So the Bible doesn't talk a lot about it, number one. Number two, it can seem like a really bad plan to us as human beings, right? Um, and in fact, Schreiner says that Jesus' life is good, Jesus' death is good, Jesus' resurrection is good, Jesus' ascension, we have questions, right? Um, and I think what he, what he means by that is just in a world where physical, tangible evidence is everything, well, Jesus isn't here any longer, right? So it makes things like evangelism, like prayer, like talking to your kids about Jesus harder because, you know, you, we all have toddlers um, and kids that, that are going to continue to grow past that age. And at this point in time, their question is, okay, well, why can't I see him? Why can't he just come over and visit? Why can't he just come for dinner? You know, yeah. why, who are we talking to right now? So um, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about it. It can seem like a, a, like a really bad plan that Jesus would ascend back to the right hand of the Father, back into heaven. Uh, number three, um, the reasons for it are a little unclear. Like, it seems like the disciples were not expecting this, right? Um, and we know that because just a couple of verses before um, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we read in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So apparently in their minds... Um, Jesus wasn't supposed to, to leave. This wasn't what they had planned, what they had imagined. And so the question there is sort of like, okay, so why did he need to leave? So um, reasons seem to be a little bit unclear. Number four, it's a really crazy, weird event. I mean, if you think about it, here's this middle-aged man disappearing into the sky and even reading it, it's kind of like, so when we read things or talk about things, or even with non-Christians, talk about healing or miracles or resurrection even, people can kind of see the rationale in it, right? Because, okay, someone is healed so that a life is restored or an illness is, you know, um, overcome or miracles happen because things need to be set right. And so, oh, that, that makes sense to me. Or, you know, the resurrection, people are brought back to life because, um, we all kind of have this, I guess, um, something inside of us that says that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But, um, but the ascension, it's just kind of like, hey, Jesus had risen from the dead, so why not just 
kind of reign on earth and, and hang out here and walk around and talk to people and let them see his nail, you know, scarred hands and things like that. So what's the reason for it? Um, is, is kind of the question that we're left with. It's just, it's a crazy, it's a weird event. Um, people are, are thinking, man, yeah, like, okay. It, it just reminds you of some really bad, like, Easter play, you know, where the the person playing Jesus is, you know, on these cables and they're taking him up into the ceiling <laughs> or something. Like, it's just weird. Um, number five, the resurrection, as Lucas, you kind of said, sort of swallows up the ascension. Um just in our minds, in our in our practice, in the things that we you know celebrate through Holy Week, Good Friday, and in, into Easter, the resurrection kind of is the thing, right? So that's not necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. Um, though the ascension may only seem like like this one more exclamation point in God's victory over sin and Satan and death, it actually represents a new stage uh, in Christ's threefold office, which we'll get into in, in a few minutes here. But those are kind of, I guess, a few reasons and helpful reasons. Um, again, Patrick Schreiner's the, the one that we're pulling those from, but those are five reasons why the ascension is often neglected. I think that's really helpful because even as you were saying those, I was like, oh yeah, I did. I do think that, but I didn't necessarily realize I thought mm-hmm. that. And it's also kind of comforting to hear your pastor say like, it is a crazy weird event. Like, <laughs> it's okay that you think that it's kind of crazy and weird and hard to wrap your brain around. Right, right. Yeah. So how do we course correct that and how do we have a correct view of the ascension? Uh, yeah, so I think um, those are all really good reasons to that, that the, the ascension is downplayed. I think the, the biggest way to course correct, I mean, Jeff, you said it, we, we so often see the resurrection as the sort of the final stage of Jesus' work. It's not. Mm. Um, and even the ascension is in one sense the final stage, but we still await his second coming. Yeah. So one way that we can, we can course correct is just, is just by paying attention. Um, and and this, is, this is more just kind of paying attention to the earliest preaching um, and even the earliest uh, belief statements or creedal statements of the church. So we're so used to, say, going through the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or whatever, but, you know, taken, taken sort of as a whole, they don't have a lot about the ascension. But when you do look at sort of the earliest sermons and creedal statements, there's sort of this kernel idea of the ascension in uh, when, when you begin to pay attention. And when, when, once, you, once you see it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to unsee it. Um, so I just want to look at a few different texts. So first of all, I want to look at Peter's uh, first sermon in the book of Acts. It's, it's a fascinating thing to kind of study uh, what Peter said to the Jewish people when he was preaching to them about the death and resurrection of Jesus, usually when we think about preaching the gospel, we think about, you know, you sinned against a holy God. It deserves death. Uh, you know, Jesus died and so on. But uh, Peter doesn't so much hit on that as uh, so much as Jesus's sort of uh, vindicated um, identity as God's son. And, and here, here's what I mean. He's, he's speaking to the Jewish people and he says, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus as, uh, of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. So he's saying, listen, God sent this man uh, who, who he worked mightily through these wonders, these signs, and you knew it. You knew that there was something about him 
This Jesus, he says in verse uh, 23, you delivered him up. According to the definite uh, plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what he's trying to say here is Jesus came and presented himself as the rightful king, the rightful Messiah, and, um, and you rejected him. So think about Palm Sunday when Jesus made that announcement of his kingship. He went into Jerusalem. Hey, I'm, I'm this Messiah. Well, you re- ended up rejecting him and you killed him. You crucified him as some fraud. Well, here's what God did. In verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on to quote a psalm. Um, and, then, and then he says uh, that, that God raised him up. He vindicated him. And he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And to this we are all witnesses. He was therefore exalted and put at the right hand of God. And, uh, and then he goes on to talk about how God has made him both Lord and Christ. And so it's this idea in the, in, the, in the earliest preaching that you rejected him as your king, your Lord, but God rejected that rejection. Uh, God overturned that verdict of false Messiah, of, of, uh, of heretic, and he said, no, he is my rightful king, and he raised him up. And then Peter says, and then he seated him. Um, at the throne of the universe, and he is the true king. God has had the final say. So um, that's, that's one of the earlier um, sermons. Um, another one is, is in Romans that's um, very often overlooked. Uh, most commentators think it's, it's, a, it's an early sort of creedal statement of, uh, of the church that Paul is quoting when he writes the Romans. But it's almost the exact same thing. Think about Peter saying, you rejected him, but God overturned that rejected him. Rejection, he seated him uh, as king. Paul says at the very beginning of Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to me an apostle, set apart for the um, gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. Uh, this son was descended from David according to the flesh. So that's a statement of the incarnation. Jesus became the son of David. Um, and then what he does in, from the verses 3 to 4 is he skips <laughs> to... Uh, to Jesus' vindication. And here's what he says. It's a really interesting statement. He says, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you might say, well, all that Paul mentions here is the resurrection. But notice what Paul says, that, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the Spirit. Who declared him to be the Son of God? Well, it was God the Father. And what does it mean that God the Father in the resurrection declared him to be the Son of God? Well, Son of God was a very, it was a, as we'll see in a little bit, was a, a kingly title given to many of the kings in the Old Testament when they reigned in God's place. What God did in the resurrection is he raised Jesus up from the dead, and it's almost like he coronated him as the rightful king of the universe. Uh, it's like, no, you you condemned him, but I, as as the rightful uh, God the Father, I am the one declaring him to be the king of the cosmos, and I'm raising him up, and, uh, and, and he's, my, he's my right-hand man. He's the one through whom I reign. So it's this idea of Jesus was condemned as a heretic, but God vindicated him. He overturned that condemnation and said, nope, he's my, he is my right-hand man. He's, he's the one who rules in my stead. He's the one who's the rightful king. When you start to see that sort of stuff, you start to see it everywhere, everywhere. It has this idea of you killed him, 
but God raised him, right? You condemned him, but God vindicated him. You rejected him, but God received him as, as the king. So you can think of Philippians 2, that famous passage. He humbled himself, but God lifted him up. You can think of 1 Corinthians 15, where the Father placed all things under Jesus' feet um, until his enemies become his footstool, and so on and so on. This early apostolic witness is that Jesus is this sort of vindicated, kingly figure who God the Father raised up and sat in uh, the heavens. And once you, once, you, once you begin to see it, you see it everywhere uh, in the New Testament. So that's the first thing I would just uh, pay attention to. What, what do you think, Jeff? What else do we need to sort of pay attention to? to yeah, I would just add to that. So the apostolic witness, uh, super important. You see it, like you said, once you see it, it's kinda, it seems like it's everywhere. Um, I would also add to that understanding Jesus' ongoing roles of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, a lot of times we understand, okay, yeah, in terms of his earthly life and ministry, he's the better prophet. He's our great high priest because he sacrificed himself. He's the, the king of kings because God um, raised him from the dead. Um, but then we kind of get stuck on like, okay, so those offices, those roles, now he went back to heaven, now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing? <laughs> is he just kind of hanging out up there, right? Um, so to understand that like he is still executing those offices and in such a powerful, amplified, expanded, um, authorized sort of way. So, so what do we mean by that? Well, first let's look at prophet. Um, in John chapter 16, Jesus makes this crazy statement. He says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to, to our advantage, Jesus. How so? Um, what Jesus is saying is like, hey, now I'm no longer limited by space and time because of my humanity. But instead, in and through the arrival of my spirit, you'll remember correctly that the presence of the spirit is in fact the presence of Jesus himself. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He also says, I am going away, but I will come to you. So in some sense, his, his spirit, the presence of his spirit is is actually his spirit residing with us um, and in and through the arrival of that spirit will both Jesus' presence and his prophetic words can fill the world in a much greater, a much fuller way. In John chapter 16, he even says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears, he will speak. Where's he going to hear it from? He's going to hear it from the risen Christ, the exalted Christ, the ascended ruler of the universe, right? And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's going to take the words of Jesus um, and, and going to declare those things again to his people, to his church, he goes on to say that all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this continuing role, this office of prophet in, in, a, in an amplified, glorified, expanded sort of, sort of way. 
Um, also, this role of priest. We understand, like, the Old Testament prepares us to understand um, this, this priestly work as, as these men who sacrificed, who then ascended the mountain of God. So you think of Moses and Aaron and David, who then interceded on behalf of the people, who then blessed the people. So you have this sacrifice to ascent, to intercession, to blessing. And while we certainly see Jesus operate like this while he's here on earth, well, what we're saying is that his ascension didn't just sort of put a stop to all of that, but again, it only deepened and widened and expanded that rule, that office. How so? Well, um, I guess we would say, like, he's actually a better person in a better place and performing better actions, right? Jesus, in his ascended state, sitting at the right hand of the Father, um, the, the way that he fulfills and even expands and amplifies that priestly role is a better person in a better place um, performing better actions. So let's just take those real briefly. Um, better person. The Old Testament priests were taken from among men, right? So from among their fathers and brothers and fellow human beings. Um, so, so Christ himself is taken from among men. He lives a sinless life, dies a substitutionary death on behalf of his friends, on behalf of, of his kind. He rises and in doing so defeats death and then he ascends as a glorified man. So he's a better person, um, a better priest um, because of that. Um, he also exists in a, in a better place. Hebrews talks about this a lot, that the temple and tabernacle and the divisions therein were like, like a miniature sort of model of the heavens, right? Um, of what it would be like to enter into the place of God, the presence of God. They were a mere shadow of this much greater reality. And so Jesus now ascended to the Father. That's where he exists in this heavenly tent, He's going into the Holy of Holies um, and he's doing uh, the, the work that earthly priests sort of mimicked and, and were the echo of, but now he is in this much better place. And then lastly, um, better actions, better service. Uh, we, I guess we could say it as, like this. As a priest on earth, Jesus sacrificed himself, offered his own blood. As a priest in heaven, he now presents that blood um, he's saying to the Father again, as he did on the cross, hey, it's, it's finished. The work is complete. Um, reckon with this, Holy Father, and, and, uh, and therefore, you know, my people are fully redeemed. Our people are fully redeemed. As a priest on earth, Jesus interceded for his people from, from a shoreline, from a garden, from a mountain, even from a cross. As a priest in heaven, he intercedes for them in the throne room of God himself. So we just kind of talked about that earlier. As, as a priest on earth, Jesus blessed his people through his words and actions, but as a priest in heaven, he blesses his people through his spirit who actually indwells them. So again, just in the, these roles of, of prophet, um, he's, he's continuing, he's expanding, he's amplifying um, something far greater than what he did here on earth. 
um, as as a priest, he's doing the same. Lucas, maybe you could talk just briefly about okay the office, the the role of king. How does Jesus how does Jesus amplify that, expand that in his um, yeah in his position as at the right hand of of God the Father now? Yeah, I mean the, the short answer is that uh, he. Because he has entered heaven, his his rule as uh, God's king is universalized rather than rather than localized. Um, and, and by that I mean, you, you know, he, he he takes these offices from Israel. Well, Israel is this sort of um, theocratic God God um, uh, God overseen uh, kind of city state, right? It was sort of this local hub, it, but it wasn't this universal kingdom. That was the goal. And we see that in passages. I just want to cover real, real quick uh, Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is, is a royal psalm. And, um, and it has in view the, the king sort of expanding God's rule and reign. It was understood, uh, at least in ancient Israel, that God's king sort of ruled and reigned in his place, in his stead, almost like they were his son. And that's why when they would have... Uh, coronations, they would they would talk about the the king being almost adopted by God because he would be sort of um, in, uh, ruling in God's stead. So Psalm two, some some scholars think is a coronation uh, sort of ceremony, but it says this: it says, "Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot vain, uh, plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Now, who's His anointed one? That's that's the king." And then it says in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, uphold, uh, the Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, now, now the king uh, himself is responding. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make all the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So that's why a lot of people think this is some sort of ceremony that, uh, that the, the people who are anointing the king would say, God is involved, they understand, and then the king would repeat, the Lord said to me, I've become his son now. It's almost like I've been adopted by God, I'm ruling in his place. And then the end goal would be that in God's stead, he would sort of overtake all these nations who are sort of mocking God and his kingdom well, that was never realized. Uh, Israel never became this sovereign nation ruling over all the other nations. In fact, they were, it was the opposite. They were overtaken by nations. Well, what happens um, with Jesus is the nations try to kill him, right? They try to stamp him out, but God raises him up, and not, he doesn't seat him in Jerusalem. If Jesus was seated in Jerusalem, it would just be this sort of local, again, this local reign. He seats him in the heavens where God is at his right hand, and therefore, he is the king above all kings. He sits at God's right hand and rules over every single nation in God's place, quite literally. And therefore, his, his reign becomes local, or sorry, it becomes universal from local, right? So you can think of when Jesus rises from the dead, he sends the disciples in Matthew 28 to all nations, not simply the lost sheep of Israel, not mm-hmm. simply this, but to all the earth. All, all authority has been given to me. Mm-hmm. So... By the ascension, his reign has been universalized, we might say. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so he becomes the, the greater prophet, priest, and, 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 and king. Uh, everything is sort of magnified through his, through his ascension. 
Yeah, I think that's really helpful um, just to kind of help us course correct and, and put the proper weight to the ascension. Um, it certainly kind of answered some questions for me, and I like thinking about how um, we see those roles of Jesus better now that he has ascended. Um, but I think, you know, there's definitely still some questions remaining. And if you're anything like my four-year-old, every time we read the story of the Ascension, the first question is, well, where's Jesus now? Mm. So if Jesus is reigning presently at the right hand of the Father, where is he? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I have that question, in too. In heaven. Yes. Well, they, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, maybe you and I can rap about this, but uh, did I just say rap? Let's rap about Let's this. Let's rap about this. <laughs> Let's freestyle about this. Um, the answer, of course, is Jesus went to be where God is. Um, now, the question is, where is God, and isn't Jesus God, and how does this work out metaphysically? Um, another, another question that you might have is, like, you know, the apostles understood Jesus' reign to be earthly, hmm. but why is it now heavenly? Hmm. And even some, early, some of the earlier Christians, earliest Jewish Christians, understood that Jesus went away for a little bit, put his reign sort of on pause and he's going to come back at some point and restore Jerusalem. But what we're saying is no, that's not what Jesus is going to do. He's in heaven. Now he's reigning. He will come back one day, but that return is not going to be finally the kingdom came. It's going to be the consummation of all, of all things. So I I think, I think people probably even get a little bit confused in that just to interject like, okay, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, you know? So even that language seems like resting, it's been completed, it's been finished, and now I'm taking sort of this hiatus, um, you know, which we've already hopefully spoken to a little bit. Like, he's he's not just sitting around not doing anything. He's still, you know, um, prophetically, priestly, king, sort of working in these different offices, working on behalf of his people, interceding for them, ruling over the nations, but I think back to your question, okay, so what is that, from where, how is that happening? Well, and especially with the ancient view of the universe, it did develop a little bit in the first century. In the Old Testament, the earth is flat, it's three stories. Mm. It has a dome over it. Mm. In the New Testament, there is this sort of understanding that, well, the earth is round, but maybe it has like seven layers above it. Um, When you look up in outer space, you know, and so you can think of like the Apostle Paul, when he had his visions, he understood himself to literally be ascending to the third layer of heaven, the third out of seven. Yeah. Um, and then even some of like the um, sort of the Hellenist uh, uh, philosophers understood there to be sort of layers of angelic beings and all, all that sort of stuff. Is there layers of heaven like that? Um, well, now we know there's not. So we can't say that Jesus sort of climbed uh, the stairs to go to the third story of the world. That doesn't work anymore with our, cos- with our modern cosmology. So now we have a modern worldview. Where is Jesus? Is he sort of floating off into space? Does he have a space suit on? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so here's, here's just what I want to say. Within a modern worldview, we don't have the multi-layered universe, but we certainly do have a multi-dimensional universe. Mm. Um, we understand angels to be multidimensional beings, mm. beings that exist among us, but we can't see them because they exist in another state of reality. They exist um, in another state of existence. God himself does not exist at all properly, um, but certainly not within our time-space frame, framework. So what happened to Jesus? Uh, here's my theory 
of one way to think about it is that Jesus has been raised to a new dimensional way of existence. Mm. <laughs> now, before you think I'm crazy, let's think about Luke 24. Mm. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to multiple disciples. They don't recognize him. He's, he's unrecognizable. Mm. What does that mean? Um, and then in another story, um, he seems to walk through a door. John chapter 20. Is that yeah. John? Yeah. yeah. He seems to be able to transcend some sort of space-time um, limitations. Sure. Um, because of his resurrected, glorified existence. And so when he, when he ascended to be with God, my, one way I've heard it is, this is from a theologian named Robert Barron, you can think of it between the difference between a circle and a sphere. A circle is one-dimensional. A sphere is three-dimensional. What if Jesus, um, he entered into a new sort of um, dimension of existence with, with God the Father, um, and therefore, we, we don't see him, uh, but he is in heaven in the sense that that's where God is. And so there's something that is, uh, it's not that he jumped on a cloud and like Mario went up into the sky. It's that, <laughs> he, <laughs> it's that he transcended into another dimension, still physical, right? Still, still glorified physical body, um, but something along those lines. And he's reigning from that place of existence what do you think is that crazy i think or is yeah, that just to genius? all the sunday school teachers at northwest bible <laughs> that's how you answer that question when uh, one of our toddlers asks like okay where is heaven and where is he reigning from no, i think that yeah i mean i think the scripture does give these allusions to his, even in his glorified state like there's yeah there's something different you know um in luke 24 they don't really recognize him until he breaks the bread, you know, and then it's like, oh, like all these, okay, now we, we so, um, and yeah, like you mentioned, walking through the doors in, in John 20, so I think it's very possible. I mean, I, I think we are speculating to a certain yeah, it's, degree. It's all speculation. I love like to do that, though. But, uh, but we do know it's, it, it's, not, it's not a spiritual Jesus that went, no, it's, went it's back to be, yeah. it's, a, it's a, you know, fully um, incarnate, glorified Jesus who returned to the right hand of the Father and now reigns from, from heaven. So I don't know if we really answered that question, but I think that is... I think it's just one way of thinking about it. But I, I do think that one thing that it does for us is it makes Jesus' presence with me right now. Um, whereas, whereas if we were to think of him on a, in this three-story universe type model, it would be like, oh no, he's in the second story, I'm in the first story. He's far away from me. Right. But if he's somehow where God is, and we can't really understand that. It's in this other sort of reality, this other tr dimension, or whatever you want to call it. It sort of makes Jesus closer, mm. I, I think. And, and um, when you read, uh, for instance, Luther, Martin Luther, he talked about the resurrected Christ. Because the resurrected Christ, his body was glorified and uh, participates in some new way in God, um, uh, that he can be present right now, and he even had a, you know, a theology of the Lord's Supper where Jesus can be, um, it's not that Jesus sort of turns into the bread, but he can be present right there as you're taking it in a real and tangible way because, uh, because it's not that he's just gone away and is far off, but he's, he's right here with us. So I, th I do think it sort of makes him closer. Yeah. So. I think, it, yeah, I think it's helpful. I think, you know, hopefully... 
our listeners are able to kind of sort through this and and find it to be helpful because I think probably probably the, the maybe one of the the greatest things to take away from this conversation is is Jesus is actively presently reigning um he's he, he's aware of what's happening among us by his spirit he is working um in our midst you know and so even as we come to worship on a a sunday morning like that's important like jesus is actively participating um in in the actions the the practices the um the the community of his body and so to to be able to go yeah that's he didn't just disappear and is gone and someday like he's going to no he's he's reigning at the right hand of the father but still actively participating um and and looking into and and being a part of ministering to presently ministering to his people yeah and maybe that's just the biggest takeaway is i like surmising obviously but but i do think that that probably is the biggest takeaway that he's with me yeah. you know yeah. jesus is with me my he's my friend he's ministering to me he loves me uh, when I sing to him on Sunday mornings, he's he's right there receiving that, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. I think that's comforting. I, I like that. Yeah. I think we could probably have a whole podcast dedicated to Sunday school questions. Yes. Nora's got one that's uh, where are, are her toys coming with her to heaven? Because she would be sad if she doesn't have her toys. And there's no sadness in heaven. So next week on In the Narthex. <laughs> Jesus, the redeemer of toys. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to know, are my dogs going to be with me? Right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's important yeah. to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's the next podcast. Well, In the Narthex is a podcast of Northwest Bible Church in Tucson, Arizona. And our goal is to spiritually form our own people. But if you're listening in from somewhere else, we really hope this was helpful for you, too. And if, as always, if you have questions or comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can shoot us an email at podcast at northwestbible.com.